seated. Well, I feel I should make apologies to some of these um, um, very mobile groots <laughs> who, who, who are going to hear the, this message uh, again tonight. You know how my wife feels now. So, yes, um, this is um, the first Sunday in Advent. And uh, we already heard about the birth of a little baby. Um, and, uh, of course, one of the first things that happens um, uh, with um, parents after the, uh, the gender reveal has, been, has occurred and there's the big news and announcement has been made, of course, one of the first questions, well, then what shall we name him? What, what will be her name? And, and, of course, that is no small matter. That can precipitate um, a good deal of, of debate. Um, there's a, a lot of considerations. Um, there are whole books that are written and lists you can find on the Internet um, to help you name your baby. And, and names are important. Uh, a name might uh, signify a, a description of, of a child or the parent or, uh, or, or, or aspirations for the child. Um, I think I mentioned this morning about a congregation I served where one of the children was named Rex, which means king. So, you know, they had some high hopes for young Rex. Um, but um, there's lots of uh, family traditions and pressure sometimes to uh, name it after. You are going to name it for Uncle, you know, Sydney, aren't you? And the family wasn't thinking of Sydney, but... Um, so this is not a small um, a matter, but uh, do you know that... Um, there was once some parents who had no difficulty whatsoever in naming um, their, uh, their child uh, because he had already been named uh, for them uh, by God himself. Uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, we read uh, that the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take home uh, Mary as your wife because what is conceived from her is from the Holy Spirit and she will give birth to a son and you shall give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. It was not an arbitrary choice uh, that name. It was significantly the, the name of a very famous ancestor of Jesus whom we know as Joshua. Uh, Joshua, you may recall, was the was the chosen successor of Moses. He was the one to, who was going to lead uh, the children of Israel um, out of uh, uh, whom Moses had brought out of Egypt into the Promised Land, into the actual land of of Canaan. And Moses prophetically even went so far as to change this young man's name. Uh, his given name was Hoshea, which in Hebrew means. Uh, he saves, but Moses changed his name to Jeshua, or as we say it, Joshua, which means Jehovah saves, to remind him and to remind us that it's not man who saves, but God alone. Well, in the Greek, um, the language of the New Testament, the name Joshua comes out as Jesus. And as it happens, by looking at one particular text, 
of the uh, of uh, an incident from the life of this great man Joshua back in the Old Testament, we actually get tremendous insight uh, into um, the one who was really uh, for whom he was named, um, even the Lord Jesus, the Living God, whose um, birth we're preparing to celebrate this first week of Advent. So, if you'll turn in your Bibles to the second chapter of the book of um, Joshua, we'll read together. Uh, Joshua follows the book of Deuteronomy, so this makes it the sixth book of the Bible. Joshua chapter 2. What I want you to see in this text of Scripture is that Joshua is shown to us in this text both as, as judge and as Savior. As judge and as Savior. We see him first as judge. That is, as an instrument of God's judgment upon the Canaanite city of Jericho. Now, at this point, some of you are happily or unhappily becoming aware that I am breaking from the study of the book of Revelation, to which I will return straight away in January, Lord willing, after this seasonal Advent interlude. So, um, let's read together from uh, Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at night, dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly. You will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of you or before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before uh, before you when you came up out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord uh, your God is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now, then please, uh, swear to me 
by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brother and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the man said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have gone, have returned. Then afterward, you may go to your way. Uh, The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us to swear. Behold, when we have come into the land, uh, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be upon his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell uh, this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to our oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Well, when... Modern readers, you and I, um, come to the book of, of Joshua, we sometimes face a gigantic problem. Because the entire book is dedicated in large part to one purpose, that being the Israelites' total destruction of the Canaanite culture, cities and people alike. Uh, in the land they invade, they take it as their inheritance, and that by the specific command of God Almighty. A scorched earth warfare that certainly to our modern eyes appears very harsh. It might appear very unjust, but it's not. In fact, it was a matter of justice, and the Lord our God is nothing if not a God who is just. So let me give this word of explanation As we look back into the book of Genesis, 
we're reminded of God's covenant that he made with his people Israel, even before they existed as his people Israel, for he made it, as you may recall, through their ancestor Abraham. He promised Abraham that he was going to do something amazing, that he was going to make them into a great nation. Uh, and they would be given all of the land, the land of Canaan, for their own, but not right away. In the fourth generation, Genesis fifteen sixteen. in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. And then God goes on to give them the reason for the delay. For the sin of the Amorites had not yet reached its full measure. Uh, speaking to the Israelites later through Moses uh, about how they were to drive the Canaanites out of the land, God says, Deuteronomy 9, After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it was an account of the wickedness of the nations that God is going to drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, the late Francis Schaeffer describes this principle of delayed judgment by using um, a familiar, the familiar biblical image of the cup of God's wrath being uh, slowly filled by the wickedness of men. I think of this in a visual way. Um, I imagine myself, says Schaefer, holding up a cup that has water dripping into it. And the water does not come quickly, but I keep holding the cup. And gradually, gradually the water rises, and at a certain point it flows over the brim. Um, and that's the principle of the, suffer, of the judgment of, of, of God. A man in revolt against God, and God waits um, in long suffering until every possibility of man's turning back is exhausted. But when the iniquity is full, when the cup overflows, God's judgment comes. Well, as it turns out, we can see this principle illustrated uh, for us in a number of places throughout the Bible and throughout the history of the world. Uh, at, at the flood, for example, we read what? That the Lord God saw how great man's wickedness in the earth had become and that how every inclination of the thought of his hearts was only evil all the time. And so God brought a great flood to destroy the earth. And why did that happen? And when did that happen? Well, it happened because of the iniquity of that age and it happened when the cup of that iniquity was full and overflowing. We see it again in the case of the two wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, places that had become so utterly uh, depraved and, and, and wicked, so filled with pride and violence and meanness and sexual perversity that not even ten righteous people could be found anywhere within those cities. Not even ten who loved God. And so finally, the cup was full and judgment came. And so also here in our text in Joshua 2, where the Lord God sends the Israelites into the land of Canaan to drive them off, the sin of the Amorites had finally reached its full measure at this point. Uh, at that point, 
which God had spoken of to Abraham. The cup was full. And together with the testimony of the scriptures, of <clears throat> modern archaeological digs have, um, in, in, in this day and age in Palestine, have uncovered um, apparently um, not only um, evidence, not only of the of Canaanite life and worship, uh, which was uh, an idolatrous exercise of complete rebellion against God, but also intertwined apparently with gross sexual immorality, a statuary, pictures uncovered that were vulgar and perverse and pornographic. And the violence and the injustice of that culture had also become overwhelming. And God had had enough. The time had come for judgment. And Joshua and the armies of Israel were to serve as the human agent or means by which God would bring this judgment upon the land of Canaan to eradicate the wicked influence of the inhabitants and the culture and their cities were burned to the ground and turned into rubble as we see in the case of Jericho and the land was given to the Israelites. And we look at this text and these other passages and we see them as a foreshadowing, uh, as a picture, as a warning, if you will, uh, of the final eternal eschatological judgment to come. Now, in the Apostle Paul's letter um, to um, the Romans, Paul speaks of the end of the age being marked uh, with the fullness of the Gentiles, which must come in. That's what he says. The end of the age uh, awaits the fullness of the Gentiles. And we generally take that to refer to the full number of God's elect from among the nations to be saved before the Lord will return. But could it not also refer to the fullness of the wickedness of the Gentiles that must also be fulfilled? When Jesus was asked when he would return, he replied that it would be a time that would look similar to the days of Noah and similar to the days of Sodom. When, it, uh, when it's like those days, he said, then I will return. Uh, look at Luke 18. And, and brothers and sisters, uh, what does it look like today uh, in this land and, and in many nations around the world? Does it not look a little bit like what we read of the days of Sodom and the days of Noah and the days of Canaan, a day ripe for judgment. Now, of course, people of every age, godly Christians, have, have often remarked upon the, the, uh, their times and their culture and saw them as being fit for judgment. And perhaps we too should, should not wonder if our nation is not at least flirting with this same terrible point at which a merciful but holy God will no longer be able to delay where his forbearance and patience uh, will have reached the end. Someone has said that if the Lord waits much longer, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, should we not wonder, uh, a nation that proudly murders its unborn children by the millions and flaunts uh, its sexual perversity in the highest places of government. And then, like the proverb of, of Proverbs 30, the woman of Proverbs 30, the prostitute who wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. 
well. But, but now listen, <clears throat> because this might be a surprise, to remind ourselves who will be the judge. Who will be the Joshua of this age? Uh, hear these words from the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation. We're jumping ahead a little bit. We'll get to that in time. Um, but um, we read in chapter 19 from verse 11. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it called, is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he will judge and make war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And in the same manner, when we read in the book of Acts, um, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, who is this appointed man who was raised from the dead and will judge the world? Uh, and the rider on the white horse. It's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, we have his words recorded in Holy Scripture, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then will the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. <clears throat> Joshua, the conquering commander of the Old Testament, who comes to bring a holy war of judgment. He is a type or a shadow of Joshua to come, the Jesus to come. And when he does come, for very many, he will come like Joshua came uh, before the Canaanites as an agent of judgment and damnation. And you and I have no idea when that will be, but it certainly wouldn't be unfair if he were to come yesterday. And um, it's not a pleasant conversation or thing to talk about. It's uncomfortable. I don't have any zeal in speaking of this. Uh, but I do feel strongly that the text must be applied in this manner. We must recognize that the warrior uh, Joshua points us unfailingly to Jesus, who will be the judge of all men. That is one of his prophetic and kingly offices. 
But fortunately, we can move on and see the brighter side of the text, for we cannot help but notice that in this text, Joshua is shown to us not only as judge, but also as our Savior. Um, for you'll notice that not all are judged. Uh, not all refuse the grace of God that is, uh, there is set before us in this text of this woman Rahab. Uh, and her family who are spared. Now, we cannot miss the fact, uh, we need to recognize that this woman Rahab is not represented to us in a particularly upright uh, manner. She's not an upright or deserving woman. In fact, she's a harlot. Here in Joshua 2 and elsewhere in Scripture, she's called Rahab the prostitute. She was probably an innkeeper, an innkeeper perhaps with a reputation for the immoral manner in which she entertained some of her guests. Uh, her establishment was a, a sort of low-class dive where people didn't ask too many questions when you came in for a meal or a room. Just the shadowy sort of place that the two spies who were sent by Joshua to scope out the city were looking for. It was a place where they wouldn't attract too much attention to themselves. But, as it turns out, they were identified anyway, and men come to Rahab's door to find them. Bring out the man who came to you and who entered your house. And Rahab lies to the soldiers and hides the spies, uh, later helping them to escape. But, the amazing thing, and what we need to focus upon here, in the, is the remarkable conversation that is recorded between Rahab and these spies. Now remember, Rahab is a Canaanite woman. Uh, she had grown up in the Canaanite culture in that city. She was immersed in that. And then that idolatry was all she could have ever have known. And yet here in our text, by the amazing grace of God, she pushes all of that aside. And here, in verses 8 to 11, Rahab steps forward and makes this incredible confession of faith. I know, she says to the spies, that the Lord, and she uses the word Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, the sacred name of God. She takes that name upon her lips. She says, I know that the Lord has given you this land. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. Where did she know that? Rahab presents this as a statement of fact, as a statement of faith. That's her conclusion. That's her conviction. That was this woman's tremendous sweeping confession of the true and living God. How she could understand that. How could this simple a Canaanite woman confess the true and living God? For it was her Saving confession of faith. And we know that because uh, her name is, uh, a thousand years later, her name is listed uh, in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews as one of the great women of faith. That's one of the wonderful things of Scripture is when you find something uh, of the Old Testament repeated or explained in the New. And this is one of those examples. Rahab is referenced in the New Testament as a, a great woman of, of God. Um, this is, um, you know, here God takes this woman 
who's a harlot, a Canaanite, a condemned woman, and he reaches down and gives her saving faith in the true and living God. He touches her heart. He opens her eyes to see and recognize the truth, even when it comes to her at the hands of the deadly enemies of her people. God brings deserving judgment on the Canaanite city of Jericho through, through Joshua, but to the woman Rahab, Joshua brings deliverance. Before escaping through the window, the spies say to Rahab, this oath that you have made us swear will not be binding to us unless when we enter the land, you have tied the scarlet cord in the window through which you have let us down and unless you have brought your father and mother and your brothers and all your family into your house. Now, what is this scarlet cord? Well, it too, it too is a shadow or a type of the blood of Christ. The red, the, the blood-red scarlet cord in the window is like the blood of the Passover lamb that was painted, or painted over the doors of the Israelites' dwellings in Egypt. As the death angel, uh, the angel of judgment passes over their homes, for they were as guilty as the, Egypt, as the Egyptians. And they did saving too. But as that death angel passed over, the blood of the Lamb was seen and, uh, and those inhabitants were spared. So in the same way, the soldiers uh, of Joshua who destroyed the city of Jericho and all of its inhabitants passed by or spared the house of Rahab when they saw the blood-red scarlet cord hanging from the window. To Jericho, Jer- Joshua was an instrument of judgment, but to Ahab, um, he was an agent of grace by which she was saved. And what are these blood-red symbols, brothers and sisters, but pictures and shadows and reminders of the merciful heart of God who in the fullness of time would send His only begotten Son to be our Lord and Savior and to shed His blood on the cross to pay for the sins of His people. It was only because the blood of Christ sacrificed for sin at Calvary that the Israelites were spared and Noah was spared and Lot was spared judgment and those at the Passover in Egypt. The same blood of Christ that saved Rahab from deserved judgment at the hands of Joshua. It was not her goodness that saved her. She was not a good person. It was, it was the remarkable faith that God gave her to acknowledge. Uh, and it's all of grace, isn't it? Uh, God himself had given her spiritual eyes to see and a mouth to make that good confession. How could this be? How could this woman have been saved? Well, only by a Savior. Uh, Joshua of the New Testament, even Jesus Christ. What did the angel say to Joseph again when he came and told her of the one to be born to marry his virgin wife? What did he say? You were to begin, uh, you were to, to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That was his name. That's his name. And we know what it means. We see it illustrated. We see it described for us in this text in the second chapter of Joshua. Jesus is the judge 
who brings a holy war of, of, of Yahweh upon a wicked generation and against those who have never made their peace with God. Those who suppose that their own good record will be sufficient defense on that final day. Brethren, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If we neglect so merciful a Savior? For this much is very sure that if you will not take Jesus as your Savior, you'll have him as your judge. Jesus is the Father's agent of grace to all who will deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. To all who will confess them as Savior and Lord. The conquering commander who is capturing the hearts of men and women and boys and girls around the world. So this Advent, what shall we name him? What shall be his name? Well, that's easy. We call him Jesus, Joshua, Jeshua, our Savior and our Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, as we pass through the scriptures, we uh, are reminded of your grace and your love. We, we see this amazing picture. It reminds us, Lord, of the truth of that day to come of judgment and that one who will be our judge but also is our loving Savior. And we thank you for these reminders. We thank you for these uh, pictures we see. And we thank you for your Son, our Savior, who was, uh, whose, whose birth we celebrate in this season. Bless these things to our hearts. Cause us to be unutterably grateful, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.